that's always that's always a I know I know the gist of the question, but I always laugh. People come up and say, "Well, um, how's everyone?" It's like that's a large question to, to really ask a report on everyone. Okay, yeah, right, yeah. Um, what are you really asking? You and I, I know there there it, it's kind of funny in our typical uh, standard communications. You know, we're really just saying hi, right? And the answer is. Um, you know, it's supposed to be fine because nobody really wants to know. No, hey, by the way, they're they're dying and, no. and, and that. But but um, it's supposed to be just a nice. Yeah, just a is a certain certain kind of thing. It is. Uh, but I'm not good at that. I mean, I, I, I you know so I, I but I, I what I do is I do I do sort of um, just let it go if um, you know something really is happening and. This is someone who really needs to know that yeah. they're offline or yeah. each in their own way. There are other people I've noticed that uh, when you ask how they are and you know, how are you and, you know, like in the greeting line or something where clearly you have space for, you know, a very brief interaction will begin to tell you. Yeah, right. And I don't so, want to know that. You know, they usually let's meet and talk. It's not that I don't want to do it. I, we just understand we can't do a full debrief <laughs> right now. with everyone. So, uh, some people, I, I, I stopped asking, How are you? I just started saying hi. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you can see they were like, Well, don't you want Aren't you going to say, how, how are you? It's like, No, I'm not going to. hi. So, all right, let's start a Bible study. Let's pray. Blessed Lord has caused all holy scriptures. To be written for our learning, grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Devlin. Hi, Connie. Welcome to the group. Um... Mimi Hartwig is known this as getting some dental surgery today, so remember her. Yes. Remember her when you're praying. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk through our, our chronology today, just give a little heads up. We have today, which is um, the uh, June, and then I think we'll have... Um, Clarify that three um, three weeks three July Bible studies oh. until we break on the last week of July until after August until after Labor Day we'll take about a five or so week break because we typically do that but it just has it so so after today we'll do some a three week study in something. Okay. So I'm looking Jennifer? for a book that, that is very conducive to three weeks. Um, and uh, one thing that kind of jumped that out, we do something different, was maybe, we'll just take a peek at it. Is this not all Is that not? No. This is someone else. Oh, John's class. I don't, yeah, it must be. That's right. I don't know if Malachi is too long for three weeks. Oh, I thought that was Malachi. Sirachi. <laughs> so 
So, all right. Well, we we we're talking about our. Uh, there are a couple extra copies too. Did you get a copy? Did you? Uh, I did. I have a copy. Um, on top of the printer there, there's some that someone wants to look at one and didn't bring a, a copy because when you're talking about a chronology that has things, it, it, it probably helps, helpful to just peek at it. It's a very visual thing. And again, the, the point of this, I hope for people, is to be a tool to place what you're reading in a biblical context and hopefully begin to get your head around a larger narrative arc of the scriptures is telling a big picture story from you know create uh, from creation to the to the telos of all things and but in the Old Testament chronology now so we we who's who's the first datable figure Abraham Abraham mm-hmm. and what's our rule of thumb for Abraham? Amen. For how, how 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 we know where he is in relationship to Christ. Oh, about as far as we are from Christ. He's about as far oh, before Christ, Christ as we are after Christ. Oh, I see. Circa with a big C, which can be a couple hundred years in different directions, but in the neighborhood, it's just a good way to think about it. Um. And and so that's where Abraham and, and where did what modern. Near Eastern country, did he originally come from? Iran or Iraq? Iraq. Iraq. Um, the, the boundaries a little bit, you know, they're not with ancient Chaldea, or uh, it is is not exactly the same. But so he was called out of there in the Promised Land, and that's about a couple, you know, four thousand years ago, maybe. That was Ur. Ur of the Chaldees. Ur is a city. Uh-huh. The Chaldees, the Chaldeans become the, the Babylonians and it's all that same narrative. Because well what happens is like a lot of areas geographically are fixed, but different people conquer different people. Uh-huh. And their ethnic diversities and things like that. So over there in the Middle East. Huh? It's all over there. All over there, yeah. It's all over there. <laughs> and then, um, so, and, and when did the um, Exodus take place? 1450. If, if we're, if we're going to go to kind of the, the, the sort of biblical dating, which I actually prefer for reasons that I, I, I uh, uh, and, and then, but, but, some, but I also mentioned to you that some modern scholars prefer a slightly later date. But maybe like twelve fifty, so fourteen fifty according to this, right? Well, you see what I say there is um, um, uh, Exodus with it with a asterisk, yeah, and that asterisk comports with something I say up top in the introduction, and I tell you why 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 there's some debate. It's just that when you create a chronology, you don't want to you don't want to get sidetracked from the the flow that's important. Like, no, we are wrong about this. I'm not reading the chronology, so just don't don't. Uh, that, that's what that's about. Okay. So Exodus, Abraham, and the, the overarching story is Abraham comes out of Ur the Chaldees, migrates to the Promised Land, which he never owns, 
uh, but has um, Isaac and Jacob and the 12 uh, sons there. And then they go down into Egypt <clears throat> to avoid the famine, and they come and they get stuck in Egypt, and they find there's an exodus <clears throat> at this day where, when God sends Moses to bring them out of Egypt into you know, back uh, into the promised land, they wander through the wilderness, and they enter the promised land after a period of the wilderness, uh, and then in the, in the promised land, they have a period of the judges, and then they have, um, kind of gets us into the ark we're in today, <clears throat> what we call in that fourth column, the united monarchy, where the period of the judges ends with Israel demanding a king of God because, um, you know, they, they don't like this, being saved by judges, but they ignore is that they only have to be saved by judges because they're unfaithful. If they would just be faithful, it would be it would work a lot better. But they get King Saul, uh, who's rejected in favor of King David, and then David has a son named Solomon, uh, who and, and as we discussed last time, um, that is. Um, Solomon in the first temple built 970 BC. I don't mean it's 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 was perfect and without flaw, but it is the golden age of Israel when it could roughly be said that all the promises God made to bring us out of Egypt and and have us prosper in the land come true. A united kingdom. Uh, and, and Israel, under that, one of, the, one of the significant things about this, that again, never happens again, only under David and Solomon. David uh, wins all the battles, but Solomon is probably the most powerful Near Eastern monarch, and he controls the trade routes. So the key thing about, you'll see this in, in um, echoed in the prophets of places that the sign of you being subject to somebody is that you're paying them tribute. <clears throat> the sign of someone being subject to you is they're paying, paying you tribute. And under Solomon, everybody paid Solomon tribute. And he controlled the trade routes because Israel's on this sort of fertile crescent that goes down to Egypt. If you want to go to Africa through this thing, you got to go through there. And so that, that was something that, that um, and so it's important to understand that that would be the um, the image of of what a fulfilled Israel would be, God, God's blessing in the land under the chosen king with prosperity, and then it, it, it goes downhill from there. And we mentioned that um, the downhill, of course, is already... Solomon was, though he was um, God's chosen king and prospered, had serious flaws. Um, he married many foreign women. He had treaty alliances. He allowed pagan worship to come in to Israel, including a child sacrifice shrine that became a timeless uh, lot, or a, an endure, I should say, a, an enduring lot on Israel that Jeremiah uh, condemns. So, and looking down below that, the books of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings begin to chronicle the kings, but end of Samuel, the beginning of Kings chronicles the, the transition from, from Saul to David to Solomon.
And then we talked about where we left off in the next uh, column, where um, after Solomon dies, uh, the kingdom is split. And the narrative that's told in Kings is how uh, the northern tribes of Israel came to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, asked him to, ha- to rule with a less heavy hand. And what that would mean is that Solomon built the temple, but he did a lot of it with forced labor and heavy taxation. And so what they wanted for allegiance was a little less of that. Doesn't change much over the years. <laughs> less, <laughs> less, less taxes. <laughs> More benefits, less taxes. Um, and Rehoboam refuses. And um, so from this time on in 931, the northern there's a there's a um, a king that actually prophetically is 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 put in place by God named Jeroboam, who who then takes the the, the ten northern tribes and forms the northern kingdom, and under Rehoboam, <clears throat> Jerusalem and the in the southern kingdom, which includes Benjamin, um, that's the division from 931. And there's never again in the Old Testament a united Israel. And, and that's, we're, so we're, we're chronicling, in a certain way, if you think about an ark from Abraham, where, where he's coming out, and, he's, and it has a kind of crescendo that's reached under Solomon, and it's all downhill from there. And probably the significance of Solomon being the, the golden age and the image of this is that he is David's son. So when we're in the New Testament and we're saying, Son of David, have mercy on us, and everyone's referring to Jesus as Son of David, of course, the clear hope is that this Son of David will take Israel back to where the first uh, anointed Son of David w- would take Israel back. And he will, just not in the you know immediate way that the first century people expected. It is interesting to note, based on what you just described, is that the peak or the crescendo was under King Solomon and his reign. But but in the New Testament, it wasn't wasn't uh, him that was being accoladed. It was it was his his father David. Yeah, and there's reason for that. <laughs> it is interesting. We should we should talk. I mean, the, the, we, and that, that should. Uh, um, it's interesting in both David and Solomon. You get this. Um, you get throughout scriptures the warning against. Um, the temptations of power and privilege. And in fact, if you if you look at the David story, David is a man after God's own heart. And But when, when did it go south for David? When he didn't go out with his troops to battle, but wandered leisurely on the walls of the city, gazing at women bathing below. <laughs> you know, and, 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 then, and then as king, you know, decide this is mine. I have a right to right, right. Um, which is when we get privilege, we we feel entitled yeah. to use that privilege to take advantage of someone. And I think this is something when we think of our Lord as the the Son of David, who 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 redeems. He never does that. 
It's, it's, he doesn't, he offers, but doesn't compel. And so Solomon then, because he inherits uh, power in the United Kingdom and builds this, he begins to have uh, an institution of power that corrupts it. Because you gotta make treaties, you gotta, and he loses sight of that wholehearted allegiance to, um, to the God of Israel. What's interesting about David though, because he did have the, the Bathsheba incident, which is clearly a very bad thing, but he was never an idolater. There's never any sense that David had any sympathy with idolatry. Or that he, he married a woman and let her hang on to her idols. So the idolatry comes in with Solomon. And I think that's really, even when we think about David as, as a man after God's own heart, if we understand it in the right way, even his repentance mm-hmm. re- reflects this fact that when he becomes aware of it, he, and, and uh, when he, after the Bathsheba incident with um, Uriah, when judgment comes on David that says, um, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, David says, okay, and walks out of the palace. That's virtue. Saul didn't, when, when Saul's sin was confronted, he didn't walk out of the palace. He tried to kill, he killed all the priests, anything to hold on to power. And, and and so there is a lot in David that, that the spirit of David and, and then David's son Solomon inherits that and he's he just biblically I just think in the image of the son of David Solomon presiding over the golden age of Israel when all the promises of God are fulfilled but then they're all lost again by idolatry and unfaithfulness we should just be aware of that mark can I ask a question yes um, <laughs> So Solomon is is the the son of David and Bathsheba. So I find it interesting that from this union comes the next the next king. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, you're fine. Okay. Okay. So it's interesting that God chose Solomon after after that. It, it, it is interesting. Sign of- that God shows Solomon, yeah. and, and it, it it although it it um, wasn't their first son. Hmm? Right? It wasn't the, the first son died, or the first child of theirs. Well, David had a lot of sons. No, I mean, didn't yeah. Oh, yeah. the no, child, the, 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 the one son child of Bathsheba. Yeah, the adulterous. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, that's right. The, the first one died, but he was another son of, 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 of Bathsheba's. And um, it, it's, it's a, it's a it, but part of the, I think the narrative, um, <coughs> themes of the Bible is that God works in messy things. <laughs> so, for example, let's look at some other things that are messy. Uh, the story of Judah and Tamar. But the, the royal lineage comes through that. Or Rahab the harlot, who's, who, who's the Gentiles saved from Jericho is in the lineage of Christ. So God redeems messy things. And I think this actually is a, um, 
an important principle for us in our lives, especially mm-hmm. in an area that's so caught up in the appearance of things mm-hmm. and what it looks like and wanting it to be nice, that um, God works in messy situations. And what we're supposed to do in our own lives of faith and prayer is discern how God has worked through all we've been through in our real lives, not try to be filled with regret and denial and changing things. Our lives are what they are. And that, that's the real life that Christ comes into and begins to work with. Um, and usually when it involves our, you know, some sort of pain or failure or weakness, um, that helps us be humble. Oh, yeah. And it helps us be more dependent. But we tend to want it to look better, so we spend time in regret when things to be different or uh, in anxiety about the future. And, and the new creation happens when we embrace Christ's presence and are realized right now. And that's what happened with David. Okay, this thing happened. And then there was a, a season, okay, now here's this woman who's here. And now this, this happened, it's done, it's here now. And uh, it won't be all it could be if that hadn't happened, but it is what it is now. And that's, that's what... Um, that's an important theme. That's right. I think that's an important Thank theme. Thank you. Yeah. So the <clears throat> Solomon's myriad of wives comes with the power and wealth of his position. It, it, it largely, I think, should be understood. It's not just that he went around touring and said, I'll take that princess, I'll take that princess. They are treaties. Huh? I'll make a deal with you. Okay. Send your wife. Send me a daughter. I give her a room. She can do this. And now I'm now now a treaty with with oh uh, that country. That's yeah. really what that's about. I mean, okay. he's not just people are always the Will Chamberlain of of, of the Will Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. People freely gave women away. I mean, the guy that has a guest and the people outside want him, and he bought. Well, that's 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 a you know that is not not okay. The, the one we have to we have to um, that's right. People sometimes did that. I want to be clear about one thing though: that just because the narrative of the Bible describes a story, right. it is not giving its approval to that story. Yeah. Narrative theology precisely is that you're to read the story. No, what? Yeah, and and so that doesn't reflect the idea that God didn't value the daughters and thought to save them. You know that they they should sacrifice their daughters. There would have been a more faithful response of of no, just just no, and that mm-hmm. even that okay, you do this, trying to find some unfaithful other way to 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 do it. But the likeness of Solomon making treaties is the likeness of us in our lives making compromises with various things in the world that we just allow it to be because it, it brings us greater influence and peace rather than saying being clear about where our lines are. Um, yeah, yes. I have a question about Solomon um, in light of the good and the, and the evil that he did. His wisdom is storied. I mean, it's a 
an expression to this day, the wisdom of Solomon. And that was God's gift to him. So in doing these treaties with foreign countries and so on, was he suppressing his godly wisdom? Or is this meant to show us what earthly wisdom can yield? No, I think that the, 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 the scriptural narrative means us to understand that Solomon departed from his direct reliance on God that was mm -hmm. present at the beginning of his rule and drifted more towards self-reliance. So we'd call that mission drift. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, it's, it's really in our lives, I, I think, we, you know, we, 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 we beat this idea of the life of prayer in pretty heavily in our, but if we drift away from a close relationship with Jesus Christ, in which all we do is interpreted in terms of the kingdom, we will begin to drift into other things and make decisions based on expediency and comfort and convenience and not what God really wants us to do. And that's that's what happens. And I think so, it clearly happened to Solomon. Now, and the warning about that is it's possible to live, you know, an outward life of, I mean, Solomon certainly went to the temple for the feasts. So he's at this throne, certainly had the regal trappings. But but when you, you know, the more, and this is always a temptation. It's why for us in the spiritual life, we're always aware that every, position or privilege and power is a temptation as well as a blessing mm -hmm. because it, it shields it it gives you power where you can do what you want and it will reward your compromise of principle often in and of itself you know, it's not not wrong. well and you but see this i mean this is really how how it is in Politics is why I think it's it's really problematic to try to apply faith directly to it because every politician eventually realizes to get you know fifty percent plus one I've got to appeal to to people and what if I what what if what I have to say doesn't appeal well we could be in a massage it we begin to you know have focus groups and 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 parse it and. Uh, that's just the way it goes. I mean, otherwise you're voted out of office. Yeah, and and that's and but that's always the thing about faith is that <clears throat> obedience will require of us ultimately the willingness to be voted out of office or rejected or not be part of something because this is what we think God wants us to do, and. Um, Honestly, I think if if you if 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 we were to assess just the Western world and the church, I think that's probably the chief modern sin of the church. It decided to become comfortable and have influence in the world and, and stop being prophetic. And be being no, this is just universally absolutely wrong. And and accommodates and then it doesn't have any it's not it's not set apart differentiated from the world and in not being set apart and differentiated has no influence on the world because it's in it just playing the same game so we move on from there then to um from so the, the key thing is, is the northern kingdom is israel 
and the capital is Samaria. Mm -hmm. That becomes the capital because there's a, a hill they build the capital on. And the southern kingdom is Judah, and the capital is Jerusalem. Those are the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, with Samaria and Jerusalem. And immediately the northern kingdom falls into sin because Jeroboam, even though God gave him the kingship, when he begins to rule, he, it, it says in the scriptures, he realized that if he allows people to go down to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. their hearts will be stolen away if they go to the real temple. <laughs> so he decided to make more convenient shrines of worship, one at the southern end of his kingdom, one at the northern end. The northern end was, called, was a city called Dan, and the southern end was a city called Bethel. And it becomes a refrain in Kings that he sinned after the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. And that was a sin. He set up these shrines and, and said, this is, this is where we're worshiping. And ultimately, um, there's a whole lot of mixture, but, but the, but all, and we'll, we'll talk through a little bit more of it, but ultimately, um, the Samaritans, which, which, which are connected to Samaria, um, have a, a kind of perverted form of, of, of Israel religion, because they, 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 they station it in a place where it's not stationed. And that's when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, where he, he clear, he's clear, what he says to her is, because they're saying, well, our fathers worshiped here. And Jesus says, well, uh, our fathers were right, but it doesn't matter anymore, because now I'm here. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. Solomon's son, right. And the, and the other guy, Cherokee, come from Jeroboam. He was just a, a. He was well. I think what he was was uh, there was a lot of dissatisfaction during Solomon's reign on the part of the Northern Kingdom for all the taxes and forced labor. So he was a leader in that grumbling group and became king. God appointed him as king. Mm -hmm. Okay, now so he he was somebody who represented the descent and. Um, Became king, but he doesn't have, he's not, not of the Davidic line. Mm. I can't remember what tribe he's from, honestly. Mm. And so that idolatrous compromise is made immediately. And when we think about the, the, the descent of these two kingdoms into eventual judgment, um, there are two really important figures, one in the north and one in the south that um, expedites the movement to judgment. And so we see that the, the, Catholic, the, the, the kingdoms are split in 931. They have this idolatrous worship. And then in the 800s, there's the rise of this king, Ahab. And he marries a woman named Jezebel, who is a princess of Tyre. And Tyre was a center of a, of a very vibrant Baal cult. And she imports that full cult into the northern kingdom, and Ahab sanctions it. So a lot of um, the book of Kings 
at uh, the end of first and the beginning of second, um, is caught up with God's prophetic opposition to Ahab and Jezebel. And then that's primarily, um, the opposite primarily comes through Elijah and then his successor, Elisha. And Elijah spends a lot of his life running from Jezebel because uh, in one of the ultimate things, he has a, a barbecue contest on top of the mountain of the prophets of Baal and, uh, and ends up with all the prophets of Baal being killed and Jezebel chases him from then on. But that's, that's, the big, that's the big event that gets the northern kingdom on the slide downhill. Um, that, that, uh, and Elijah and Elisha are non-writing prophets. They're prophets about whom first and second kings tell us, but they don't have any books. There's no book of Elisha as opposed to, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, who wrote books and may have had some ministry described, but they but they wrote, they mostly wrote down what they did. Do we have an idea of of, of who authored the First and Second Kings? I've looked recently to say who who. Uh, um, but one thing we should note about First and Second Kings in the Jewish tradition is that um, they are. Um, we tend to think of historical books and, and prophet books. So, but in the Jewish tradition, everything from Joshua through Second Kings is are prophets. They're called the former prophets. And they understood this history to be prophetic history. So the former prophets in the Jewish tradition are Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and the latter prophets are the book of the are the four, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, and then uh, what's called the Book of the Twelve, the, the quote minor prophets. Not because what they said wasn't as important, but because their books are shorter. Bishop? Yes. My my Bible says there's a Talmudic uh, tradition that kings, both first and second, were written by Jeremiah. Huh. So I don't know. <laughs> That's a, a Jewish tradition, evidently. Well, the one thing I would say about that tradition is that um, <clears throat> certainly somebody else wrote stuff down because Jeremiah was about 620 B.C. Mm -hmm. and, and First and Second Kings are chronicling events that happened, you know, in the 900s B.C. Mm -hmm. Certainly Jeremiah didn't sit down from whole cloth 400 Right, right write this out. Mm -hmm. he, he collected, there, there would have been some collection of something. So if Jeremiah is the one who assembles the tradition, um, and we should understand that uh, a lot we don't know about how things get written. Israel was a writing culture mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, but was also certainly an oral culture where people told stories and those 
stories that were probably written and told, and they got passed on. And what makes, um, when you begin to have judgment happening in a living tradition like Israel, people begin to write down the record of what happened. And that's what, that's, that's how you, so that would be the plausible thing that a prophet, okay, I need to put this together to, to explain different what happened. So, if we go by century, you know, the 900s were the, both the United, the, the, the golden age and then the split, the 800s were the decline of the, um, of, of the northern kingdom under first Ahab and then his successors. He had other successor kings who were also bad dudes. Omri and some other names. You get to the 700s. What's notable about the 700s is this is, well, there's a lot of, you know, it's not the only thing notable. I list the prophets there that are written in the set that by, by tradition date to authorship the beginning of the 700s. Jonah, Amos, Micah, Hosea, and Isaiah. And we see down below that the, the most important event was Samaria Falls to the Assyrians. So this, the, 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 after the split of Israel into north and south in 931, the northern kingdom only lasts 200 years, 210 years. And the Assyrians uh, are the preeminent Near Eastern power that comes and puts Israel under tribute and then eventually conquers. And the Assyrian practice when it, with this conquered people, was to take some of its people from other parts of the, their empire and resettle them in the conquered land and to take some people from other place, from, from the land and put them elsewhere. And so from this time on, um, this is where it, it comes the idea that the the Samaritans are impure, or sort of, in slang terms, bastard Jews. They're not pure blood, um, and so, and and this is why they're they're despised in by the Pharisees in the New Testament because they're both of impure lineage and impure Torah. They're not really following the right thing. Um, it's interesting, though, of course, that you know, get finding Rahab and, and others. Uh, uh, in the lineage of our Lord, makes it clear that that may not have been as important to God as, as it was to the Pharisees. So, Samaria, so Israel, the northern kingdom goes away. Now, th this is where in the language of, of history, when people talk about the, quote, lost tribes of Israel, the idea is that the Northern Kingdom was destroyed, so what happened to the Ten Tribes? Now, I've talked to uh, Jewish people who contend that um, members of all Ten Tribes migrated south and have an enduring lineage, and I believe that the, uh, the Chronicles has some, some genealogy of that, but the Chronicles is mostly concerned to show that there's a genuine Davidic king. Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll get we can get to that, but that's anyway. This that's where things because northern kingdom goes away, never comes back. There's never again a northern kingdom, and uh, 
And generally, when, when the southern kingdom goes to exile and comes back, it will be called Israel, not Judah anymore. Jerusalem will still be the capital. Jerusalem will still be the capital, that's correct. And in God's eyes, Jerusalem is always the capital of the true Israel. And um, and so these prophets, um, Jonah, will we'll note that Jonah, remember who Jonah preaches to, what city? Nineveh. So Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Mm-hmm. So that's what we, we, and that's why Jonah like doesn't like doesn't want them to repent because they're oppressing his people and God wants to, and him to nail God to nail them, not to. Um, wow. And then Amos uh, has a lot to say. Amos' prophetic book has a lot to say about the excesses of, of leisure in the north. He has a lot to say about the excesses of leisure women in the north. <laughs> Calls them cows of Bashan. You sit there, <laughs> sit on the couches all day drinking bowls of wine. Um, and Micah, uh, Hosea, um, and, and Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is interesting because um, it's clear that Isaiah has a prophetic horizon that begins in the eight, in the seven hundreds, but extends to the to the exile of the of the southern kingdom. And this has led some scholars to think that there are two or three Isaiahs, but we won't get into that. It, it certainly is true that ancient authorship wasn't so much this one guy sat down and wrote every verse of this. You could call it, you know, like you call it Torah, the five books of Moses, we say Moses wrote them. He most certainly did not write the account of his death. <laughs> Somebody else did. So, you know, there were some other hands, but it's the idea he was sort of, you know, the overarching, you know, compiler, editor. And um, you, could, you could have a, a school of Isaiah where recognized prophetic acts and writings were committed to, 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 the, to the thing and came under the high. The, the, uh, that's a whole different story. So they're, they're the. Um, it's kind of like. Uh... Like famous artists, you know, like Leonardo da Vinci, well, not da Vinci, but uh, Michelangelo, where he did the the overall design, but he had many people working under him for this vision. And so yeah. there are many scribes. Yeah. So, um, so by the time 700 rolls around, there's only Judah left. And... What, what Ahab is to Israel in the north, uh, Manasseh, the evil king Manasseh, is to Judah in the south. His reign is discussed in Second Kings. Uh, he had a very, very long reign of several decades. And the, the king's described says there's no one as bad as he ever was. And so he's the one who introduced <clears throat> idolatry and compromise and cemented it. And um, there is in the um, Apocrypha, not in the books we consider to be authoritative, say, but there's in the Apocrypha, a, a book called The Prayer of Manasseh, which uh, purports to be his repentance. Hmm. Hmm. So, 
Um, I haven't done enough uh, research to speak authoritatively on it, but that's it's there purporting to be this king was so wicked turning. Um. What what happened um, in the mid in in the second half of the sixth century BC six thirty and beyond is there was there was a, a beginning of a reform. Uh, and the reforming king, I should probably put his name in the um, thing, but his name was Josiah. Mm -hmm. And they, they find the book of the law in the temple, and they read it, and they, it's a little bit of, okay, we're going to do this thing. But one of the problems, and this is something it, I, I think we should take to heart today when we talk about we're going to renew the culture, we're going <laughs> to convert the thing, is that... Um, while that renewal was in earnest by King Josiah and those who got the books in Jerusalem, the idolatry is very deeply embedded in the whole culture around it. And it's not so easy to say, okay, we're all just going to change this now. And that's part of our problem in terms of mm -hmm. Christian faith is we can have a revival, but our, our compromise with the consumer marketing and other kinds of modes is so deep it's not that simple as to get fired by Jesus for a little bit. And that's, that's why the Josiah reforms did not save Jerusalem for very long. In fact, he died, and he actually tried to intervene in the battle. And it was in this time internationally, um, I think at 610, um, somewhere in the late 600s, that the Assyrian kingdom was conquered by the Babylonian kingdom. So that um, by the time Israel's being threatened with conquest, or excuse me, Judah's being threatened with conquest, it's not the Assyrians, but the Babylonians. And historically, then the Babylonians have significant battles with the Egyptians, because Egypt is a power to the south, <clears throat> and the Babylonians, we have to understand something about a map. So if you have Israel here, Egypt here, and Iraq over here, the Bible would, 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 would describe the Iraqi threat as coming from the north. Mm -hmm. That's because the only way, to, you know, you, this is all deserts. So you're not coming that way. So it comes this way, but it's really here. And what, what in, in, you'll get in um, Isaiah, excuse me, and Jeremiah especially, because Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are... are, are um, the principal prophets of this period, but Jeremiah, especially speaking to the last days of Judah, would criticize the tendency of the of the of the king of uh, of Judah to make a, a treaty with the Babylonians. And where he got in trouble and how Israel gets destroyed is he makes a treaty with the Babylonians and promises to pay, and then the Egyptians offer a better deal oh. when when they've gone back home. And then what, what kings would do is they would, um, the way, you know, you couldn't travel quick, as quickly as you do now. You can't just send your, you know, your bombers over. But, like, they would, like, beat the bounds of their empire every so often, every year. So Israel could, Judah could rebel against Babylon to get a better deal, live happily, until king of Babylon mounts up his army, comes up the Fertile Crescent, comes down, and now says, okay... And then, okay, we're sorry. And it goes back and forth like this. But that's what, there, there are two things that um, 
the prophets really hammer Israel on. One is uh, idolatry, worshiping idol shrines, and two is making treaties with foreign rulers and not depending upon the God of Israel. And it's basically the, the betraying of a, of a deal with the Babylonians and making a deal with the Egyptians that gets Israel conquered. And um, Jeremiah was very unpopular because he told um, the southern kingdom, make a tr- accept Babylonian rule. This is a consequence of your disobedience. Don't fight. But they did fight, and they did rebel, and eventually they, um, they, the Babylonians built a, a, a siege mound around Jerusalem and, and uh, destroyed uh, the, the temple and um, the city and carried Israel off into exile in Babylon. Now, we, when it says we carry Israel off to exile in Babylon, obviously not every single person went to Babylon. Some people left in the land. But the Babylonians certainly exported the, the smartest and best. And that's why when you um, read the book of Daniel, like you got Daniel's friends, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are Jewish exiles who are smart, who Nebuchadnezzar puts in charge of palace affairs. He's, he, he recruits them for... for um, and so that's the ba- Babylonian exile um, that happens in 586 B.C. or 587. Scholars debate the actual year a little bit. And it matters. It matters, yeah. Um, <laughs> that is the exile into Babylon from which um, Israel never really returned in earnest. Now we talk about the arc of that, but... Um, And these prophets here, um, Zephaniah and Nahum and Habakkuk, uh, are, are in this area of preaching either before the, the Babylonian captivity or just, or just during it. And Ezekiel, um, the difference between Jeremiah and Ezekiel is that Jeremiah preached to the southern kingdom in the land of the southern kingdom. Ezekiel was one of the early exiles. Now, there was there were actually stages of deportation to 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 Babylon. Some were taken in the late 600s, some like in 597, and some finally when they just took them away at the end. So there were there were Israelites over in Babylon early on, and Ezekiel was one of those who was taken. So when you read Ezekiel, he's prophesying people in Babylon. But at this period of time, not in, the, not in, and he's what's what's he he gets a profound vision in the first chapters where he's he has a vision of God. He's carried in the spirit from Babylon to the temple, and God gives him a tour of all the idolatrous activities that are going on in the temple. And there's a and and there's actually a very very profound scene that pertains to the New Testament in Ezekiel because. Well, let's put it this way. The southern kingdom had this kind of idea that as long as God was in the temple, they they couldn't be conquered. So Ezekiel has this vision where after God gives him a tour of the the idolatry, 
he sees um, uh, one more piece of backdrop. When Solomon dedicated the temple in Kings, there's this dedicatory prayer, and the glory cloud from God comes into the temple, and it just and God the glory of God fills the temple, and as it were, God takes up residence in the temple. What Ezekiel sees is a vision where God rises up in the Holy of Holies, supported by the cherubim, and leaves. He goes out over the threshold, he pauses, and this is the profound thing for New Testament terms, he departs Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives. Mm -hmm. So that when on Palm Sunday our Lord is coming in Jerusalem, the glory is returning, Mm -hmm. only to be finally rejected. And ascending over by the Mount of Olives. And, and so, um, so once, but in Ezekiel, once the glory departs, now the city is open for destruction. And what's what's notable about about the because what's going to happen? We'll talk about it in a minute. Where they rebuild the temple um, seventy years later, five fifteen BC. Although it's kind of a pathetic small replica. Remember, Solomon had all this stuff. But when they rebuild it and start doing things, there's no recorded event whereby the glory of God actually came to be inhabited. There is. And in a wait and say, that's something that Malachi says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Because uh, it's waiting, here's the temple built, waiting for, for God to come. And that, in many ways, symbolizes what, what the, the, at least the mindset of a devout Jew in the first century is, okay, we went into exile hundreds of years ago, we've come back and rebuilt, and we've been under Greek rule and Roman rule, and what do we need to do to get back to, where, you know, something like the Golden Age of Solomon, where we, Israel's a preeminent country, and, and the nations flow into it for worship. The answer would have been um, that you need to receive your Messiah. Yeah. But they didn't. And so when in the first century, A.D. 70, beyond our chronology here, the temple gets destroyed a second time, it's never coming back because the Old Covenant is over now. The end of the Second Temple was the end of the Old Covenant age. Even though we have we have prophetic literature on the new temple that's going to be built, right? Well, the only thing I, I would highlight, uh, dispensationalist error notwithstanding, is that... Um, it's very clear in the, in the New Testament that the temple is being rebuilt. You all as living stones are being built into a house. That's what St. Peter says. The church is the new temple. And, and so all the images of Ezekiel about the rebuilt temple have to be understood in the light of the phenomenon that happens in the Incarnation, that the Word has been made flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld His glory. And now, through the Holy Spirit, the glory of God dwells in us. And we gather, we are the temple of God. So you can't, you can't go into reverse 
and 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 after, you can't. It's not even possible to have a temple like the Old Testament because the whole phenomenon has changed. The incarnation and the church replace uh, the ark and the temple. So we hear of those temple rebuilders that are gathering pieces to rebuild a physical temple over in Jerusalem yeah. right now, or in Israel, right? Well, or, if you're an Orthodox Jew, um, you know that, uh, and this is, you know, that you can't really practice your religion without that temple. Mm-hmm. If you really take the Torah seriously, but it would also be ironic, that's the wrong word, that's the wrong word, interesting, to see what would happen if even for a small period of time they could rebuild it, would they really reinstitute the daily sacrifice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that daily absolute slaughter of animals publicly and, and splashing blood, would that really happen? <clears throat> but that's clearly what, for example, the Epistle of the Hebrews makes it clear that the sacrifice of Christ rendered that unnecessary. And it's it's... It doesn't make any logical sense. We never know exactly what may be happening, um, you know, God is doing, but it doesn't make any logical sense to move backward into a building from the fulfillment of the other. So, Is, is Jesus in us? I mean, I know this is like a mystery and everything, but like Jesus is present in the sacrament in the church? Like, would you say it's like that, or it's, there's a difference? Or no, no, it's 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 a it's an analogically sim- similar miracle. That's always what um, that that the incarnation, the Word is made flesh and dwells among us, um, and then in baptism and faith, we He comes to dwell in us. So we He is in us. The the food of the Eucharist mm-hmm. is. Um, I, I think I think there's something I, I think Schmemann's take on this is really good in, in the sense that when we say that that it is there's a a, a a miracle of consecration by which Christ becomes present, it's just restoring this food to the staff status that all food was intended to be, which is a means of communion with God. Mm-hmm. How does it become that when we take the creation that we've been given, if we're restored to our proper roles as as kings and priests of the creation, dominion of Genesis 3, and we, in our proper role, offer the creation to God, um, he gives it back to us as a means of union, communion with him. And that's, we're restored to that in Christ, whereas that was abdicated in Adam, because... Um, as Schmemann would say, they, they, they partook of the one food for which they could not give thanks because it was not a gift. And so the fallen world exists outside of the kingdom and is merely stuff. But that which comes into the kingdom, and so from the, you know, and the, the Eucharist, I think, is the central miracle whereby um, God's people... Uh, come to exercise their corporate priesthood and offer the creation back to God in thanksgiving, casting down their crowns, as Revelation would, would indicate, 
and, and are restored to union, communion, and the sacrament in a true and visible way, out of that foundational act of baptism and communion comes then just a pattern of life. We're always taking what we give, giving thanks to God, and then receiving it as a gift, and life becomes a means of, of communion. Whereas in the world, the world is taking things to use its own way, as though it had a right to do what it want, wanted with it. So that's a long answer to how I see it differently, but that's that's why we look at it. Okay. The Assyrians came from the north, is that correct? They're more like, they're closer to modern Iran. Okay, and, and uh, Babylonia was where? Modern Iraq. Iraq, okay. Essentially, I, mean, I don't, wouldn't say that the boundaries in conquest yeah, have, have no changed, but the general sense, a general sense of Assyria is, is usually Iran and, and Babylon is usually Iraq, understood to be. Couple, couple few points here to finish off the chronology then. So they go to exile in Babylon, and then um, the um, in the last column, the Babylonians who take Israel into exile are conquered by the Persians. And there's a famous Edict of Cyrus that takes place in 539. It's in the Bible, in, um, I think it's in uh, Chronicles, and I think Kings has that. Yeah, Kings has it too. Where the um, Edict of Cyrus um, allowing the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. So um, this is where uh, the, yeah, the Jews turn and begin to rebuild. Um, and the three prophets that preside over the rebuilding um, are Haggai and Zechariah. And this is where um, Ezra and Nehemiah come in as books. These are people go back to reestablish the law and the worship. And when you see Nehemiah, Nehemiah is significant. I'm, I'm not condemning Nehemiah, but when you look at him at the end, you'll see inklings of our New Testament Pharisees. Hmm. I've got the Torah, damn it, y'all gonna bang. These people trying to sell the Sabbath, he went and pulled their hair out. He saw people that are marrying, he broke up marriages, which is questionable whether that's really the thing, but, and he says to God, um, Remember me, O Lord, for my zeal. Hmm. Now, I think I, I, don't, I think God was favorably disposed to Nehemiah, but you can see how the tradition developed because the 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 idea of the Pharisees, which is probably the word Pharisee is probably Persian in origin, so they probably this class of people arose in Persian rule, Pharisee, Pharsee, hmm. um, and they. Uh, if you look at the narrative thing here, so they understand that we went into exile in Babylon because we did not keep the Torah. And so the sort of legalistic response is, damn it, we're going to keep it now. And so when you talk about Old Testament legalism, there wasn't really any Old Testament legalism. You notice up, here, up until this date, even getting into the rebuilding of the temple, legalism doesn't come until this temple's this, the second temple begins to be built. 
Up until that, every Israelite is lax. <laughs> The, the real problem of the Old Testament is, oh, God's with us, and we're compromising all over the place. When you get Ezra and Nehemiah going back and rebuilding, this is the beginning of legalism. And it, it, this is the period from here on, 515 to the New Testament, where the Jewish tradition begins to develop. Okay, keep sound holy. What's that mean? How far can you walk? This is how far you walk. What, 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 what qualifies as work on the Sabbath? Mm-hmm. And it gets into the, the, the interesting, I mean, interesting is sort of silly for us. If a fire breaks out in your home on the Sabbath, is it work to put it out? Which is a, a live Orthodox Jewish question. Mm-hmm. But that's where legalism comes in. And you see with that, it answers the laxity, but it misses the, it misses love, which is, is, comes in the incarnation. But that's, that's how, that's how we understand <coughs> that, that period. Um, so by 515 um, BC, there's a second <laughs> temple, um, and you know it, it may make sense to take a look at Malachi for our because we're ending up with that here in this genealogy. So maybe that's the the thing we'll do for three weeks as we read ourselves through Malachi. Um, but this sets a table for what the problem of the New Testament is. They, they rebuilt the temple, and there they are. Now, one thing we should know, because if you remember, uh, when you get to the New Testament and the disciples with Jesus in the temple, they say, to him, look how beautiful this is. And the temple they built in 515 was not beautiful. What happened was, in the century before Christ, Herod the Great, in order to curry favor with the Jews, remodeled and beautified the temple to make it what it was at the time of Christ. But it, it, when they rebuilt it, it was like, it's kind of like even our movement where we build a church and like, we built some, you know, it's a nice church, but it's not like Canterbury Cathedral. It's not like, you know, so I'm saying that. So Solomon's temple is like, wow. Now we build the temple, it's like, oh. And actually, the Bible records some some Jews, there were somebody, some old people who, were, who must have been very young, because that's 70 years, but when they saw the second temple, they cried. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is it. Bishop? Yes? Um, is there any time that we could maybe look at Daniel? Because uh, Daniel does mention Cyrus as well. Um, and he talks about the building of the temple, you know, that he gives the weeks until the Messiah comes, or, or whatever that word, I don't know if it is Messiah, but... Um, yeah, the Messiah comes. That would be interesting because that's a big um, uh, dispensational. <laughs> they actually say, oh, yeah, these are the weeks before Messiah oh, comes. It, it is, but one of the problems with studying you know, Daniel uh, in, in all that symbolism is that uh, you have to have a great humility with what you can know and not know from it. Right, right. And, and, and we often want to say it. Now, I, I won't. I'm, I, I might not be satisfying enough to tell you that you know the you know what really gets these guys a hearing is they tell you what's happening right now. This is this right, is exactly this is, this is the reality. You, you don't really know that. Um, but there are some. We, we could look at Daniel. I mean, Daniel's a long book. There's a lot of stuff in it. Uh, so we could take it on sometime, and we could look at parts of it. Um, so. Okay.
And then other books, Esther uh, is in the Persian kingdom, where she uh, uh, helps the Jews not be exterminated. And it's not entirely clear where Job picks up. So, I heard it was the first book ever. Mm-hmm. Are we on that? Any, any final questions about it? Hopefully, just I keep the. I mean, if you keep this in a Bible where you read, then you can. Okay, where am I? Yeah. That's how. That's how I learned a lot. Where am I? Oh, this is where I am. This is where this fits into the story, and then I can begin to make sense of what I'm reading in in, in a larger context of things. Bishop, when was Josiah? When when did he reign? Josiah was somewhere around 620, 630 BC. Okay, okay. Is this, did you format this? Is this from you? Yeah. I did it for a class uh, a long time ago. Yeah. And I've used it a lot since. That's good stuff. My, uh, my, my Hebrew professor, who was Old Testament professor, uh, was also big on chronologies. <laughs> and got me big on chronologies. So. All right. Let's pray. Lord bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forevermore. Yeah, I think this is great. Mm-hmm. Good to be with you all today. Jim, Phyllis, Elizabeth, Connie, Ruth. Hey. Ruth, too. All right. So, my dispensationalist revelation uh, professor, Biola.